Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. You know, 0.6.2 was released. This includes Alex Kutmos' recent work that makes it easier to render a supervision tree in Livebook. While this is helpful for education, it's also very cool for documenting your team's projects. So we'll drop a link in the show notes to the Hex package, along with some pictures from his Twitter feed. So check it out if you're interested. The other couple fixes and improvements in this release were to Kino Data Table. You can check out a link to the change log as well. And maybe coming up in the future with Livebook as well, Alex teased a process tracing viewer. The supervision tree can render that relationship between these processes. But what if you wanted to trace the functions in your in your process? So that could be pretty interesting to visualize. And you kind of need to see it to, to really understand what this is going to do for you. It's like a, a swim lane graph where each lane is a process. So that's pretty cool. And then the arrows that kind of move between the swim lanes to, to show what is uh, spawned uh, and messages that are passed. That's pretty cool. I know I do that when I'm designing some software. Uh, so that'd be pretty cool to have, like kind of automate that or like get a kickstart of like, what, what did I just write? <laughs> what are these processes doing? Uh, and make sure that's exactly what I was intending to do. I'm excited to see that come. If it does, that'd be pretty cool. And next up, Elixir LS got an update that was quietly rolled out to everyone who's using VS Code, thanks to the auto-updating for plugins. Some people noticed this on Twitter and brought it to our attention, and it's a subtle behavior improvement. We got a link to the PR in the show notes so you can see some video of this in action and, and get a better idea of it. But the purpose is to suggest an appropriate module name with the def module snippet. So this means when I create a new file in a nested directory structure, the improved code completion will suggest the module name based on the nested directory names and the file name. In the VS Code Explorer, when you're creating a file, you can create something with some slashes in it to say in this directory and in another foo slash bar slash baz.ex. And it will actually create those directory structures and a file named baz.ex. And then when you go to def module in your editor, it will create the namespaces based on those directory names and file name. I just think that's a, a really neat little feature. For what it's worth, I think there's some Vim plugins that kind of do the same thing too. But it's not it's not the language server. And sometimes I can get a little annoying, like like in my Phoenix controllers, like it's in there, it's under the controller, you know, folder, but I don't want controller you know, as part of the namespace, I want it to be part of the, the module name, like, you know, user controller, but not controllers.user. Maybe it's a little bit more sensible this time around. I have to try it out. Next up, a new library got our attention called EctoERD. We'll drop a link to the GitHub repo. This adds a dev time mix task for generating an ERD entity relationship diagram in a variety of formats for all your Ecto schemas in your project. So it looks like it supports dot, mermaid, plant, UML, DBML, quick DBD. Maybe some of those sound familiar to, the, to you, but the dot format assumes you have the GraphViz library installed on your OS. So you can check out the library for more information on that. This looks pretty cool. There's some screenshots. It might be fun to run it on your project. I don't know. Have you guys tried running it? 
I did. I tried it out and on a standard Phoenix app, it worked. However, when I tried it on an umbrella app, it had a problem. So I reported the issue. And you know, that just seems to be the, the way it goes. Like I prefer umbrella apps as a way of organizing my things. Just that's, that's how I like it. And <laughs> it seems to always like get a little bit of extra friction from libraries and stuff like that. It's like, it's like umbrella apps are like the windows applications, you know, <laughs> nowadays windows is like on the, on the, the last to, to get support for, for cool stuff. Yeah, <laughs> that's not always true, but <laughs> nevertheless, it's a great library to check out. And I'm definitely going to be keeping my eye on that one. I just wanted to point out that these last few items that we just talked about with Kino and Alex Kutmos is with the process spawning and Elixir LS and the Ecto ERD. I just think these are all wonderful examples of how the tooling and the surrounding Elixir ecosystem is maturing and just getting better and better. So I just thought that was a, a fun little way to to see it real time. Like that's that's what's going on. It, things are just getting better and getting more mature. I, I don't know if you're a regular listener of the show, you, you probably know our format, right? We always start with the news. You know, we've been we've been going at this for you know over a year, and we've been podcasting for you know longer than that even. And all the time we go through the news, and the news contains stuff just getting better and getting released and stuff. And so it's it's nice to pause for a second and just realize like how far Elixir has gone and how far. The ecosystem is gone. You know, we focus a lot on the ecosystem, right? And where we were like two years ago, now we're we're in a much better place now, much more mature place. So if if you are having conversations, whether folks saying that Elixir is too niche or too small or too new, I think it's time to start challenging that idea. I think I think we're becoming much more mature now. Something else I think this tells me is that the core libraries are strong enough that people are spending more time on more fringe around the, the, the core, right? So a lot of the news used to be like, oh, this important bug was fixed or this really important feature that was missing is now there. And a lot of that seems to have really filled out. So now a lot of the exciting stuff is in Livebook and it's in uh, all these other libraries and things that are supporting what we're doing as developers. So that's another sign too. All right. And uh, if you are not a regular listener, maybe you uh, haven't heard of all the June announcements in the, uh, in the Elixir space, but so here's a good uh, a recap from, from Jose Valim. We'll have a couple of links, but number one, there's set theoretic types, PhD research for Elixir that's happening. That's big news back in June. Also, number two, Axon, which is the pure Elixir neural networks. Uh, first beta was released. So that's huge news. Like the ML space for Elixir has been getting better and better and better. We typically cover things really early and, and to the point of Axon, like before they even had a real release. <laughs> but now Axon has a release, uh, a beta release, but it's a release. So that's pretty cool. And then, then number three, you know, research with Elixir. And by research, I mean research like the the research field, right? The academic and the and the thing, the tooling around conducting research with Elixir. Those are the three big you know things that have happened in the Elixir space in June. That uh, Jose Valim, the community partnered with some academics, and we're going to try pushing these areas forward. I noticed there was a new book titled "Building Table Views with Phoenix Live View," written by Peter Ulrich. So if you've ever tried to componentize a feature-filled data table in LiveView, then you start to realize there's a lot of difficulties. And you're like, oh, well, I would like it to be accessible too. And you're like, wow, there's a lot to this. And so I think this book might be what you're looking for if that's a similar situation for you. So currently the book is in beta. 
it's another sign to me of, you know, that live view is at a state where you can do that. And we can build these really feature rich components with infinite scrolling and, and whatever else we need to do. So I just want to put that on your radar. Speaking of books, Sasha Yurok announced that he's working on the Elixir in Action 3rd edition. So we got a link to the tweet, but he said that he's expected to release it in the later half of 2023. So not anytime soon, but sometime, you know, a year from now, plus plus some months, we might see Elixir in Action 3rd edition. And I know I've heard from a lot of folks that Elixir in Action is like primary textbook material for learning Elixir. So that that's the one people will go to a lot to, to learn about OTP and how Elixir works and be introduced to it. One more library update. It looks like Goth 1.3 was released. So Goth is a library that helps you generate and retrieve OAuth 2 tokens for the Google Cloud service accounts. It looks like this version has a major change to how configuration is done. So it's worth pointing out if you're upgrading, there's going to be a bit of a change here, but it looks like it changes away from global configuration to passing it in in your application tree, which kind of just goes with the way that Elixir has started suggesting that libraries do their configuration. Lastly, just wanted to share a little project management tip that was really helpful for me lately. So this came from a quote from Adam Wathen of the Tailwind CSS project. It's really simple. It says, everything goes smoother when you focus on getting 10% of a project 100% done instead of getting 100% of a project 10% done. For me, that was like super relevant and just, I've got a side project I've been working on. Many of us have side projects. And in these side projects, we are also the project managers. So I found it's really easy to get distracted because I want to go work on some other really cool idea or feature in this other area of the app. With this idea of getting 10% of the application, 100% of the working, focusing and going really deep, to finish one area, like that could be the MVP, right? That's what you can actually start sharing with people and, and get users. And then that gives you more energy to, to build and continue on. And it was really helpful for me just to re- kind of refocus, like, yes, let's just get this one piece all the way done. For me, that means I can put on my little project manager hat, make a plan, prioritize things, and then go back to coding. Hopefully that can be helpful to you too on your side projects. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Alex Kudmos. Alex, welcome to the show. Howdy, howdy. How's it going? If you, dear listener, recognize his voice, that is because he's also on another podcast. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're also doing? Yeah, if you've heard this uh, this voice before, it's probably on the Beam Radio podcast where I co-host with Sophie Benedetto, Bruce Tate, Stephen Nunez, and uh, Lars Vickman. Yeah, so we nabbed him to talk with us today. So thank you for joining us. Some of the things we want to talk about is you're doing a lot of things in the open source Elixir arena, and it's just a lot of exciting stuff. We want to highlight some of these things. We talked about some of them before, especially like Prom X, and I want to make sure people know about that and what that can do for them. But, you know, you've got like the Nerves Weather Station book that you've worked with with Bruce Tate and Frank Hunleth. And there's other stuff you're working on now, like with an Elixir Patterns book. So and you've got these libraries we got to talk about. It's like, that, man, OK, we just, we just got to have Alex on and talk about some of this cool stuff. But before we jump into all that, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? So I currently live in uh, Connecticut. I used to live on the West Coast. I was in Seattle for a time working at Amazon for almost two years, then the Bay Area. 
but I grew up in Connecticut and decided to to move back east. So I've uh, gone back and forth to the United States a couple times now. Not a fun drive to do. I would not recommend uh, doing it with a box truck or even a car for that matter. Yeah, currently residing in uh, in Connecticut. I work at a company called uh, Woosh. Uh, I was actually back-end engineer number one. Me and the CTO established a lot of the Elixir code base. You know, we're using GraphQL, Promix for, for monitoring and observability, all that good uh, Elixir stuff. At Woosh, we actually provide a kind of like a one-stop solution for golf clubs. So they can manage their tee times. So it's a lot of scheduling stuff. They can manage their members, billing, fun app to work with. Uh, and, and Elixir makes it so much, so much more sweeter. I always assumed that you were self-employed somehow and you just didn't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also do, I also do part-time consulting as well. At the moment, I don't have any Elixir clients. I actually have a client that I'm helping out with some PHP stuff. So Laravel. But yeah, I like to stay busy. Well, I wanted to talk over a few of your open source libraries because you have a number. And that's something I think we've seen with other people in the Elixir community. Like they start creating a library and they're like, oh, I've got an idea for another library. And then you end up with a collection. So I want to just talk about a couple of them. One of them I was surprised to see is called Doctor. And I had not actually seen this one before. When I was looking at your collection of libraries, like, oh, here's one. And oh, it has a really high download count. So I thought other people might know about this, but then there might be a whole bunch of people who didn't know about it like me. Tell us a little bit about Doctor and what this does. That came about because I wanted a better way of ensuring that a code base had a good amount of documentation without being super strict. I think like Credo has a couple of rules where you can say, you know, like all, you know, all public functions have to have a type spec and you need a module doc for everything and you need docs for everything. So it's kind of either or you either checked for it or you didn't check for it. And with Doctor, I took a slightly different approach where I was like, maybe not every function needs to be documented, but maybe you want, you know, 80, 85% of your functions documented. So it kind of acts more of like a, like a code coverage tool, but for documentation. Every time I get Credo in a project, in a Phoenix project, I get a little irked when like my controllers and views aren't documented. I'm like, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Same exact problem I had here. I was like, I... Like for the controllers, like I, I don't care. So I have like a whole bunch of rules in Doctor where you know you could regex the name of a module and say don't care, don't don't even take this into consideration for for documentation. Because like I said, most of the time it's usually just like a thin wrapper, just validating in inbound parameters, and then it just delegates to a context. That's kind of how that project came about. And uh, I, I don't know if the download highest count because of other people, like actual users, or all my other libraries use Doctor <laughs> to make sure that the documentation is good for those libraries. So. I imagine it's it's probably also like a CI oriented kind of thing, you know, like I, I don't know how we should ask maybe the Hex folks. I, I imagine every time a CI run, you know, happens, usually it's going to go reach out to Hex and download the thing. Does it increment, you know, there or I wonder if they keep some unique count. It could be, especially if you're not using any kind of like caching and like GitHub Actions or GitLab or Circle CI or whatever. I, yeah, I have no idea. So another library that I wanted to talk with you about it's a SQLite library. So recently, we talked with Ben Johnson about Lightstream in episode 101, where we learned about how his library was helping replicate SQLite databases across multiple regions and, and things like that. So it's a very interesting idea, but it's all about replication with SQLite. It really kind of started me down a rabbit hole of SQLite, thinking, wow, you know, I can do things with SQLite with Phoenix apps that I'd never really considered before. You have a library called SQLite Scale. I would love for you to share a little bit about what this is doing and why people might want to reach for this library. Uh, so this one's actually not a library. That one was more of a like a proof of concept. So one of the 
you know, quote unquote downsides of, uh, of SQLite is that uh, you only have kind of like one connection to the database and only one thing can, can write to that file at a time. If I recall correctly, when the write-ahead log came out for SQLite, you could have concurrent reads, but writes are still kind of blocked one at a time, which isn't that big of a deal, given that it's all you know on the file system and it's local host. So yeah, it's not not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> but either way, I was kind of curious, like if we use something like dynamic repos and we effectively shard that SQLite database across, you know, maybe every user has their own SQLite file. And the only shared SQLite file would be, you know, your user's database. You know, what what would happen there? How, how would that look like in, in Elixir and dynamic repos? And so that, that SQLite scale repo is actually like a proof of concept. How would you go about doing this? How would you go, you know, about running migrations to make sure all of the customer files all have the same schemas? It was an interesting experiment. I do want to go further with it, which is why I also want to introduce uh, Lightstream into the mix and see, like, after you shard all these databases, can you also dynamically update your, your Lightstream configs and then stream all of those database changes to, you know, S3 or some sort of uh, object store compatible uh, service? SQLite's nice because it, it's one file. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing complex about it. You can copy and paste that file anywhere and you effectively, that's your, that's your backup. So I think for for a lot of cases, you know, SQLite will do just fine, and maybe maybe don't need to reach for Postgres or MySQL or, you know, pay those exorbitant cloud fees for a managed database or anything like that. What I think is interesting that that came out in our conversation with Ben Johnson was this idea that you could have a sharded database where you could say, "I want a database per customer," because then you think of GDPR and someone says, "I want you to delete all of my data." It's like, oh, boom, done. You know, or I want a download of all of my data. It's like, oh, here you go, SQLite database. It's an interesting solution that I had never really considered because the idea of running SQLite on the server as, as my primary database, that's just not the default that we reach for with current setups. Yeah, absolutely. But it, it does unlock, like you mentioned, it unlocks a lot of like interesting use cases where you didn't even think about that before as like a as like a plus. And you're like, oh, that actually is a, a big plus now that you can RMRF that SQLite file and you're in compliance with, uh, with government regulations, as opposed to writing these giant SQL queries and trying to find every single row that needs to be uh, deleted. So yeah, I, I think it's a really good solution. It does make things a lot simpler. <laughs> Like, like there, there are a lot of products where like you don't need web scale, right? Maybe you have like hundreds of customers and that's sufficient for your product. There's no reason you can't go to SQLite, run it on a, uh, on a single instance, just back up stuff to S3 and you don't need any complex stuff. You can run your whole business for like a couple hundred dollars a month. With just a couple hundred uh, customers, man, I'm just going to float a Raspberry Pi out there and give it a public IP. Yeah, there you go. Really go low cost. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm thinking more about the sharding thing, though, in SQLite, and I'm curious, uh, maybe you know, uh, you can help me understand here, performance-wise, sharding with SQLite probably isn't going to actually give you a lot more performance, though, because of the optimizations that SQLite already has, doing all of its database things to a to a file and and that kind of stuff. But I guess it, it would have to be specific to your use case. Like you mentioned, it was about... Um, concurrent rights on, on certain, you know, operations that you were doing, right? Or, you know, like what we talked about with the GDPR things. But if you're like trying to just squeeze out, you know, performance on general SQL stuff, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that like sharding would be a, an option there? 
so again, this is mostly just like a like a thought experiment. I was curious if it, if it could be done. So I haven't run any of those benchmarks or anything like that. The theory is that if you have a an application that's that's write heavy, this should help. But I do have it on my like blog to do list to actually do what you said and like stress test it and see if it actually makes uh, you know makes a difference or is the overhead of of using dynamic repos just not even worth it. This could also be useful, you know, in, in you know something like Fly, right, where maybe. One of the databases is, you know, on the West Coast. One of the databases is on the East Coast, and you still kind of leverage those underpinnings of, of dynamic repos to kind of sort that out, or you know, something like that. What I think is interesting about that is you do have a lot of cases where I might have a customer that's West Coast based, and there's no reason to replicate their data necessarily all the way over into Europe because they're never going to be accessing it over there. So like, it does become like, wow, you know, I I, I could just stay there in a SQLite file or. You know, I don't know. It's it, it, it really is one of those things where it just makes me think. And I just, I'm going to be thinking about that kind of thing for a while, I think. You, you don't know me, Mark. I could I could have have an airplane ride over to Europe and want to access my data. I could I could go to Singapore. I need I need that fly IO replication stat. How well supported is SQL? I don't think I've ever done it with Ecto. Is it like a first class citizen with Ecto? Yeah, now it's actually a first class citizen. Uh, a few a couple years ago, a few years ago, I had a customer that was doing some embedded stuff. Uh, they weren't using NERVs. They were actually rolling their own kind of build root setup. I was using SQLite for their product. And this was before like the Ecto SQLite library came out. So it was the one that Connor Rigby was was maintaining. Yeah, it worked great then. I think the the new one that's like officially supported now it works even better. Yeah, it's it's quite easy to get started with SQLite. And actually anytime I want to test something. I usually just make a like a Phoenix app with SQLite because I don't want to run like Postgres or anything like that. So if I ever want to experiment with something, it's usually just SQLite just because it makes POC stuff a lot easier. Yeah, that makes sense. You might be remember- remembering when uh, Ecto 3 came out. I think there was a support gap for a while for the SQLite adapter. That's what it was. We're good there now. Maybe we can segue into talking about your nerves weather station book because I often think of that as like, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense if you're on a nerves device. Right. And I want to do persistent storage and be able to do queries and everything. Yeah, actually, for that book and for nerves in general, I'd never actually use SQLite. For, for that customer, they, you know, they were doing embedded uh, Elixir, but they weren't using nerves. But I was using SQLite. And then for the nerves book, I actually used Timescale DB, which is the Postgres time series data extension. So I've never actually used SQLite and nerves together, which is, I guess, odd now that I think about it. The time series DB is, I know it's like, uh, it's like Postgres, but made for like columnar databases. Does that run on a Pi? Uh, so for the nerves book, uh, all the data was being collected on the Raspberry Pi. Uh, okay. And then it was uh, piping it all over to a, a Phoenix backend. And then that was running timescale. It was like the sensor edge device that's doing all the data collection and, and pushing it back to somewhere for analysis. Exactly, exactly. Nice. Very cool. So why don't you tell us a little bit about this, the Nerves Weather Station book? So I know first we mentioned at the top that you co-wrote it with Bruce Tate and Frank Hunleth, Frank Hunleth being one of the original creators and maintainers of Nerves. That sounds like it would be a fun team to work with on building and creating a book. Oh, yeah, that was that was definitely a lot of fun. Frank is uh, Frank and Bruce are both super awesome. Like anytime you have any Nerves questions and you ping Frank, like instantly you get a response back and he's like, oh, did you try this? And usually that's you know that's what solves the problem. So, but uh, yeah, writing with them was was a great experience. We had a lot of fun with that book. 
We started the book pre-COVID or maybe like just in the beginning of COVID. So finding hardware was ridiculously easy, you know, two and a half years ago. But uh, we've been we've been having problems as of late. And most of our support, my questions are, hey, where do you get this sensor? And we're like, we have no idea where you get this sensor. Wait a couple months for the pandemic to calm down. When you wrote this book, this weather station book, who is it for? Like what, who is the ideal reader for this book? I think the ideal reader is probably somebody who's familiar with Elixir and wants to kind of make that jump into that, like that sub niche of Elixir, which is embedded programming. Like if, if Elixir is your very first language and you have like no idea as to what the runtime does or how it works or what the benefits are, it might be a little bit over your head. If somebody has picked this up as their first book, please you know reach out. I'm curious what your experience was. <laughs> but yeah, the the idea is you know you're familiar with Elixir, you kind of want to take it into that that new niche of uh, of embedded systems. That's kind of that was kind of the target audience. And so, what is it that they're going to build if they follow along and and go through this whole process? What do they end up learning and building? Yeah, so the idea is to get the reader to make like a full stack solution. So they'll start with, you know, the nerves device. They'll learn about organizing their code base and poncho projects. You know, they'll, they'll get like a nice development flow with SSHing into the, uh, into the Raspberry Pi, flashing the firmware over the, uh, you know, over the air, kind of, you know, getting into that rhythm of how do I write the code, deploy it, test it, and, you know, kind of iterate from there. Yeah, after that, you'll set up from scratch one of the sensors. So you'll read the spec sheet, kind of figure out how to do all those uh, those nice uh, binary pattern matching uh, clauses so you feel like a pro. And then after you set up that one sensor from scratch, uh, luckily, uh, the Nerves community has the libraries for the other two sensors, so you'll just pull those in. So after you've after you've done it once, you kind of know how it, how it goes. You can lean on the community for the other two uh, sensors. After you build this Raspberry Pi and you connect all the sensors and you're you're capturing all this data, you know you'll write a very very simple Phoenix backend, pipe all the data over there, and then the Phoenix backend will persist all that into TimescaleDB. DB. And the very last chapter is setting up uh, Grafana, and then getting Grafana to talk with TimescaleDB, and then you can you can output and uh, visualize all that sweet sweet time series data. <laughs> So he kind of glazed over that flash your firmware over the air, but if you haven't tried it, that's such a magical thing. You have to like flash it once, but then once you're done and you're connected, you just type this little magical command and all of your code just flies over the internet into your device and restarts. And it's like, how is this even happening? It's like, it's almost like you're just, you've got a whole, you know, GitHub action set up, you just merge to master and, and your, your stuff is all deployed onto this little embedded device. Yeah. The development experience is like, it's what you expect from Elixir, you know, as a, as like a Phoenix application, it's that same exact experience, but on in, uh, in an embedded context, which is just phenomenal. I think this is probably a good point where we can jump in and just talk a little bit about prom EX, which is another library that you have, which uh, I know we've talked about uh, several times on the show. In case there are listeners out there who haven't really heard about this and haven't tried it yet, give us a little intro to what this does for you. I guess the elevator pitch for Promix is that within you know five or 10 minutes, uh, and I actually demo this on my CodeBeam talk, within five or 10 minutes, you drop a couple lines in your, in your application, you run like one or two generators from Promix, and you could automatically get a whole bunch of uh, metrics out of your, your application and all the supported library dependencies. And all those metrics can find their way to Prometheus. And then in addition, 
Promix also offers all the Grafana dashboards to visualize all those metrics that are captured. And so Promix will also take care of the life cycle of deploying those dashboards to Grafana. If you give it a, an API key and it can interface with Grafana. And then, you know, just like that, you can have metrics and visualizations in Grafana and you're, you're good to go. Yeah. I remember coming across this library a little while ago and it really is really straightforward. I mean, you've got plugins for everything too, right? Like AppSynth plugins and Phoenix and Oban, a whole handful of things. You just pop some lines of code in and all of a sudden you have like all the dashboards you could ever wish for. Oh yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the, thanks for the feedback. I'm glad that it's easy to set up, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the idea is to, yeah, like with one line, just, Hey, what plugin am I using? Enable the Oban plugin and then enable the Oban dashboard and then boom, you're done. That's, that's it. And I mean, all this would not be possible. I can't take much of the credit in Promix. None of this would be possible without all the great projects in the telemetry GitHub organization. Like without those, there's there's no way this would have been possible. Because, you know, Oban, Absinthe, Phoenix, et cetera, et cetera, all of them use telemetry. And that consistent interface makes it possible to collect all these, these data points and then surface them. So without that, I mean, you'd have a fragmented ecosystem and there'd be no consistent way of getting uh, telemetry data out. You have a couple more projects that we can talk about. I, and I remember coming across one called MJML EEX. For those that don't know what that might be about, you know, MJML, I forget what it stands for, but I think emails and EEX is that template, you know, renderer. Tell me a little bit about this, about this project and how it can be used. I'd say it's probably like a bootstrap, but for your emails, right? Is that, is that kind of a good way to describe it where it's like you, you yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like you use the, the MJML markup and kind of like their, you know, their classes and attributes and that gets compiled from MJML template syntax into raw HTML. And if you ever look at that raw HTML, there's like a whole bunch of if statements for if you're looking at this email in Outlook, if you're looking at this email in Gmail. So like it, yeah, and it kind of takes it back to like the jQuery days where it's like, how do you how do you make your your web stuff cross client compatible? So, yeah, apparently email is still like way behind the curve and MGML kind of bridges that gap. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember thinking about like, yeah, CSS and uh, uh, things like that on the on the browsers. I, I still think about like IE6. It's still in my mind about how it was like so different from everything else. And so, yeah, introduced so many compatibility issues. And then, and then I don't know, a, a decade later, I had to write some emails, right? An automated email thing. And I started looking into how to do that. And I was just like appalled. I was like 10 years, it's like 10 years developers. Like, what have we done? What have we done to ourselves here? And uh, yeah. And so the, the need for things like MJML uh, came, came up, which I think, yeah, bootstrap for emails is, is, is a pretty good description. It's to bridge all that incompatibility issue because nobody wants to deal with that. It, it is such a mess trying to do emails. Like unless you're doing like <laughs> plain text emails, which are pretty dull, you know, cause you, you at least want to include links and stuff like that and not just count on the email client to turn a URL into a link. And, and so as soon as you start adding any kind of styles, then you realize why things like MailChimp exist because it's hard. Like there's a, it's, there are services dedicated to doing this because it's just such a mess. What is the secret behind this library? Like, are you figuring out how to do it and all these different clients and di different viewers and, oh, this person, they're using Outlook and, and an older version of Outlook and it's going to use an older version of IE embedded, you know, like how, how is this? Or are you leaning on some other libraries to help do that? 
Yeah, yeah. So I'm actually leaning on the actual MJML compiler. So the, uh, the first party one is written in JavaScript. So you have the option of actually leaning on that compiler, or there's also a Rust project, and we'll have to put a link in the show notes, but there's an Elixir library that actually wraps that NIF project in Rustler, in a Rustler NIF. In MJML EEX, you have the option, which compiler do you want to use? There's some subtle differences between the two. So if you, you know, let's say you've you've got a whole code base of MJML templates and you've been compiling them with the, the Node compiler for the longest time, just stick with the Node compiler. If you're just starting out, I'd probably say use the Rust compiler since it's ridiculously fast. And so the idea with MJML EEX is, you know, both the Node compiler obviously does not care about EEX. The Rust NIF just merely wraps the, the Rust library. So you literally just pass it a string and it compiles it and that's it. So the idea here is to kind of bring all those niceties that we have with like, you know, Phoenix templates, for example, where you could have like inner content and you could templatize your MJML templates. So let's say you want to have like a consistent header and a footer. You don't want to copy and paste that across 20 emails in, in your in your app. So just make a template with like an inner content tag and then just inherit that template. So it it tries to make it as as easy as possible to make emails. And the goal is because like w- with stuff like MailChimp, it's always a bit of a pain in the butt because you have to make the template in MailChimp and you're like, all right, this is the ID that I have for this template. Now let me, you know, magic ID this into my app. Now, how do you test that? Because you know that that email now resides on a different service entirely, so you can't you can't really have any X unit tests. Whereas with something like MJML EEX, you can assert, hey, did this like reset uh, password token actually appear in my email? And then you could also make really dynamic emails, you know, dynamic columns. At Woosh, we actually use uh, MJML EEX for all of our invoices that we send out to clubs, and they're really really well customized. They look really professional. Uh, and we don't have to lean on anything external. And it, it makes it a lot easier for us to validate that, yeah, everything is working. We can we can test it. We have kind of full control over the life cycle of transactional emails. Last little rant about emails is like, I remember actually opening up the source of some of these emails that the, these the MailChimp things, you know, like exported. I remember seeing it and like this, there's stuff in there about like Microsoft Word you know, like styles about word in there. I'm like, what is going on here? <laughs> it's a flashback to like Dreamweaver, right? Learning how to do any web programming at all. And you do the what's you see, what you get editor, like Dreamweaver and uh, or, or Microsoft front page. Mm-hmm. And then and then you click the tab to go look at the source and you're just like, what? You know, and in that moment, you're like, wow, I'm so thankful for this program to do all this complex, <laughs> this complex stuff. But then you realize like how this, what, what is actually necessary out of that. And you're like, oh my gosh, like these are, who programmed this? Like, this is awful. <laughs> this is like the worst way to build your website. <laughs> so, so bad. Without a lie, that is totally how I start out my like programming career. Like, I, <laughs> I remember consulting when I was in high school and I would make like uh, websites for local restaurants. And that, that, was, that was literally my workflow. I was like, right, time to Dreamweaver and, and front page this up. Yeah, the things you would have to do to bend the editor to get the website the way you wanted. And then you'd be like, all right, I can't touch this anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was back in the days where you used tables for layout. It's, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. It, it maybe the, uh, it, it was, it was in, even before iframes, it was like the actual frames, you know, where you could see the bar in between the nav on the left side. Or if you got real good at it, you can do the, what was it, SHTML? 
and that was like embeddable, like server rendered, but embeddable, like HTML. So that way you can have like a different file for nav, your navigation thing that would be dynamically rendered into your main page. Anyway, oh, you were you were way more advanced than I was back in the oh, day. Oh my goodness! And then and then DHTML <laughs> files was like dynamic HTML, which was just a stupid way of saying JavaScript. <laughs> but real early on, and now we're still dealing with it all in email. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Email is still trailing behind. Good lord. I want to talk about your other book that's coming up here, but but before we get there, tell me about Replug and Unplug. Because judging by the names here, it's about plug, and every Phoenix you know developer here is going to know something about plug. So what is what are these plug libraries doing for us? When I published Unplug, I was actually really surprised I got that hex package name. I was like, how did nobody else see this amazing like plug pun in the making? But in any case, I got an early. That's a really valuable piece of hex real estate right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the idea with Unplug because I've had this problem in the past where it's like. I want to run a certain plug. Most of the time it was the telemetry plug. 99% of the time. But for certain cases, I don't want to run this plug. So just to kind of give a little bit of insight into the use case here, for certain calls to my Phoenix app, mostly like slash metrics, right? Like to get my Prometheus metrics out. I don't want any telemetry. I don't care that uh, something hits slash metrics. Uh, and the reason for that is Prometheus will hit your app, you know, every five or 10 or 15 seconds, depending on how much you configure it. And so that'll really pollute your logs. And so unplug, you can s- kind of set up like a declarative way to say, run the telemetry plug if, you know, the request route is not in this list of routes. So I'd say run the telemetry plug if the route is not slash metrics or if it's not slash health check or or whatever. Okay, so you said health check, and that's the immediately where I have run into the scenario. I, I usually end up creating a plug that's so early in the pipeline, right? It's It doesn't even make it into the router, right? This is in endpoint.ex where I put this this uh, plug. And then I halt the connection, you know, if it's if it matches the route. And that's how it doesn't do, you know, the, the rest of the, 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 the processing. So this unplug or replug is it was it unplug yes yeah, so this this one's unplug the one that allows you to unplug the plug from your pipeline <laughs> <laughs> so that so this is basically doing that but without you creating your own plug you just, exactly 100 okay, gotcha. yeah gotcha. yeah and the nice thing is you use it for a whole there's a whole bunch of predicates in there so you can specify when to run the plugs another time i use it is you know, like in grafana cloud you can have grafana cloud hit your app from a whole bunch of different servers to see the latencies uh, from different parts of the, the world anytime i make a request from grafana cloud i attach a header and then with unplug i could say ignore all requests that are coming in that have this header so you can do it based on headers you can do it based on routes uh, there's also behavior in Unplug, so you could define your own kind of predicates. So it's just a nice way of removing that boilerplate that I found myself, like you, doing it all the time over and over and over again, where I'd make my custom plugs and halt and custom plugs and halt. So this just made it really easy. Gotcha. It reminds me a little bit of Rails, like before actions, and then uh, you can do the predicate methods in there, like if or unless in there, or, or in models as well, any callbacks. I've actually... I've never written a Rails app in my life. <laughs> I might be one of the few people that like came to Elixir and didn't come through like Ruby and Rails. Well, well lucky, lucky for you, you know, like there, there's, but there is like a lot of valuable like design patterns in there. Uh, some of it is maybe better left behind, but the, the like the the hooks in there. This reminds me a lot of the of 
of Rails hooks. And you can do that in controllers. You can do that in models. So this, this is kind of reminiscent of that a little bit. In other words, it could be your 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 library is probably making some Rails developers feel a little bit at home with uh, with Plug. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad in that case. <laughs> so does this add any kind of overhead if you're like every single request that comes in now has to like go through a series of, I don't know, computations to decide if it should run this plug or not? It is adding some checks there, but they're, I mean, they're pretty negligible because I've, I've tried to keep the behaviors the same under the hood. So in your plug, you have the init uh, callback and you also have the uh, call callback. And uh, I can't remember the name of the option, but you can have it so that when you're compiling your app, whatever computation comes out of init, like just becomes static in your call function and you never actually recompute whatever happens in init. Uh, so I kind of keep those those semantics the same in unplug. So it'll beforehand at compile time, it'll figure out what's coming out of your init function and then it'll automatically populate that in your call function after it runs its own call function. So there's there's a little bit of overhead depending on what your what your predicate is actually doing, but most of the time you're just checking for like one or two things in a list. So however however much overhead that that adds plus an extra function call. Well, I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about your Elixir patterns book that you're working on. People can check this out at elixirpatterns.dev. So you're working with Hugo Barauna. I think he's helping edit this. Why did you choose to do another book? Because books are hard. So now you're doing another one. And so the first book you did was with Pragprog. So you're doing it through a publisher. And this one, as far as I can tell, you're, you're self-publishing it. So I'd love to hear about like how this book got started and how you're working on it. So I was working on the Weather Station book last year. And I remember Hugo reaching out and he was like, hey, I love your you know, Elixir tips on Twitter. I think I was doing like the goal was to get to 100 tips and uh, I got to that goal. You know, I might revisit that and do like, you know, 20 Phoenix tips and 20 Ecto tips and maybe get another series going. But for now, <laughs> I got, there's quite a bit on my plate. So I'm going to I'm going to put the brakes on that. But yeah, he reached out to me during uh, the Elixir tips Twitter series and he's like, I love these tips. Is there something we could do? Maybe make a book? You know, live book was also coming out at the same time and it was getting some traction. And so I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Let me finish the Weather Station book and then we could, <laughs> we could sync up in a couple months. That's kind of how it started. Yeah, it's just, it's kind of been a collaborative effort of, uh, you know, writing and putting together the live books. Uh, the live books was actually Hugo's idea. Uh, I was just going to write a, you know, a boring PDF, but now we have cool live books where you can, you can run your code and, you know, see all of your Kino visualizations. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of how it started. Yeah, I've really been enjoying using Livebook, especially as a, as a learning resource. I think it, I think it's a great medium for certain, like, concepts that you want to, like, teach. Because there's only so much that you can do in like a PDF or a book versus in Livebook, you can use visuals. I'm currently working on a PR to Livebook to actually visualize your supervision trees and application trees. I was actually going to have that as part of the book, like an exercise. But then Jose reached out and said, hey, just just bring this in as a uh, as a utility in Livebook. And uh, I obviously was not going to say no to Jose. So I... Uh, I repurposed all that work and it's going into Livebook. I think by the time this airs, that PR may be, may be merged in. I don't know if a new Livebook release will be cut, though. Yeah, the idea is to kind of not necessarily make a, a reference book or a book for, for entry-level developers. This is more, I'd say, intermediate, beginning, advanced uh, readers. We want to cover kind of getting past some of the 
Elixir standard library stuff, dive a little bit more into the Erlang standard library, which I feel like most people forget about or, or don't lean on when they could. And then also, how do you structure your applications? How, how do you build supervision trees? How do you actually design a, a failure scenario appropriate for the use case that you're you're working on? Stuff like that. Well, there's a few things we need to touch on. Like Hugo Barauna, uh, he, in case you don't know, dear listener, he runs the Elixir Radar newsletter. And so we just need to mention that. So he was probably seeing your tips as he's monitoring and helping to put together the newsletter. But then you also mentioned like this whole idea of the Erlang standard library. And I think part of the problem is it's just not as discoverable as, as an Elixir developer who's coming to new to Elixir. The Erlang standard library isn't easily discoverable unless you know what other website to go to, to check out their docs. And then their docs just aren't as nice and searchable as xdocs. That is a, a good place where you can start like what you're doing here is helping introduce people to, hey, there's a lot of good stuff over here. Here's what it can do for you. Be aware that this is even available. Was there anything in particular that jumped out at you when you were doing this and say, oh, wow, I didn't realize that was here? I've been leaning on a lot of these Erlang libraries for quite some time, and I'm mostly writing about what I've what I've used. But there's definitely a lot of good stuff in there. Like the Q, the Q module is amazing. Definitely use that a ton. You know, ads, persistent term, counters are great. There's a lot of good stuff in there that I think goes underutilized. Uh, I think people get a lot of value, especially out of the first two chapters. And actually, the first two chapters are free if you want to download those. But uh, in those first two chapters, I go over all the immutable data structures in chapter one. And then we also talk about the the mutable data structures in chapter two. So we talk about like persistent term counters and ets and and, and deaths in chapter two. And then chapter one has like sets, you know, cues, stuff like that. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about Livebook and the role that that plays in this project because I think when you think of publishing a book, Livebook is very interactive. It's very different from your traditional book, right? And I'm just Curious how that has been for you trying to publish and work with this and putting it all in live book and making these exercises that people can play with. What's that been like for trying to create these lessons? Uh, so it's been a little interesting. I don't want to make a book where we just copy and paste stuff between the PDF and the, and the live books. I don't think that's a very valuable offering to, to readers. So we try to really cater the content in the live book to live book and make sure that we lean on it as much as possible. And then whatever's in the book, while you know maybe it's it's mirrored kind of content, we try to make sure that it's consumable as a book. In the live book, you know, we use Kino. Obviously in the, the PDF we can't use Kino. So we try to make sure all the examples are executable via IEX, but then all the live book stuff can use Kino and can use uh, some more kind of nifty utilities there. Yeah, I think my favorite one in the live book, I can't remember what chapter it is, but we did a patterns around uh, stream, the stream module. And so one of the examples was how do you go through a you know, very large CSV file and then plot like all the population data. So that's that's something really cool that you could do in live book versus the, you know, the, the PDF. We can't really we can't really do that. So I think we do some other uh, example that's a little bit more succinct. It's an IEX. It's a little bit easier to consume. Readers will get two for the price of one here. So they get the live book and the PDF all in one go. You said this is, you know, targeting the intermediate leaning towards advance. 
what are some of the other kinds of patterns that people could look forward to? You'd already mentioned a few. You mentioned streams. You mentioned like understanding the uh, supervision strategies and when they would want to lean on one over the other. Any other patterns you want to tease? We also go into infinite streams, which uh, is a really useful thing that I've I've uh, used in the past, especially with dealing with not so good REST APIs, or maybe you don't know what page you're on, you know, with the incoming data, and you need to keep paginating until you get no data back. I've seen APIs like that before, and infinite streams are a great way to get around that. And there's actually an example of that in the book. The live book, I think, has like a infinite stream that hits the Hacker News API and tries to find like a certain number of, of posts so that kind of demonstrates using uh, infinite streams. And then as we get into the gen server and supervision tree chapters, we're going to have patterns on starting up your application and using gen servers to hydrate maybe a persistent term uh, cache or an ETS cache. Uh, we're also going to have some examples on you know rate limiting with gen servers. We're going to have some examples where you want a gen server to buffer up some data and then either flush that data when you hit a certain timeout or when you uh, have like a certain amount in your in your buffer. So it's it's kind of getting the reader to the point where they feel comfortable with with gen servers and they they see them as as constructs for building kind of sub applications in their in their greater application as opposed to just oh, how do I use this to just store some state for for whatever reason. So it's it's kind of kind of pushing you to, to to use the beam as much as possible in your application. That sounds like good stuff. I feel like it's easy for someone to use Elixir for a long time and not realize the benefit of some of these things you're talking about. Like, for example, something that we've been working on recently at work is like caching, kind of like how you're talking about, like preloading that preemptively caching or warming your cache, I guess is what they say, like when you boot up so that you don't have to hit your data store the first time you get a request for something because you maybe have lots of requests in some environment or something and you just don't even want to hit your data store. And there's just all these cool things that you can do. And like people always say like, oh, just use PubSub to like notify all the other nodes. And it's like, well, how do you just use PubSub to notify the other nodes? Like I get, <laughs> I get that like I can subscribe to something. And anyways, it wasn't until I like dove in that it's like, it's literally just PubSub just works across your cluster. So literally just use PubSub. And so I like, I heard that a lot. It wasn't until like I had been using Elixir for who who knows how many years before it finally clicked. And I realized you really can just use PubSub (laughs) to notify all the nodes in the cluster that something updated, right? Yeah. I want to zero in on what you said. Like, even though you've been using, you know, the beam for years, there's some of these patterns that just don't click till you see some examples where you go through some examples. And in my case, it's like, yes, I've done, I've done exactly that thing where I've on boot needed to worm a cache. And in my case, I still need to revisit the code. Really. I I'm just populating a nets table, but since I did that work, that was back a while ago, like OTP 21, I think now we're on OTP 25. I think persistent term is now a little bit more. I can't remember. I think it was introduced. Persistent term was introduced since then. I don't think it's that old. I could be wrong there. But anyway, that's a better pattern to use for things that's not going to be written to very much. Like that could be something that I do, whether it makes a huge difference, probably not in my case, but that's the better pattern, you know, maybe to 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 push forward. And I, I could actually be wrong there, but that's <laughs> versus persistent term. But I know that there's been some talk about like when to use this versus versus that and having a book and resource like Elixir Patterns is is a good place to reinforce some of those ideas. Just to touch on the persistent term topic, like if you're if you're never updating the data, 
persistent term is great. Oh yeah, yo. In my case, never updating it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've actually <laughs> used it to store like Markdown for for blog posts. So all the blog posts are actually just served right out of persistent term. So there's no file reads or anything like that. So on on application boot, there's a gen server that kind of blocks in the init function, uh, which is what you would want to do, and then hydrate your persistent term or, or warm the cache, as they say. I, I thought. I thought hydrate was the cool term a little while ago. Is it, is it warm the cache now? <laughs> only re- in React. You only have to, yeah, people get dried out in React, but people warm up in the back end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, persistent term is great for that that read-only stuff that uh, you're never updating, which is great. In the similar vein, like I've done Ecto for a long time, but it wasn't until I had done many years of it that I start learning. There's like all these like fancy expert plus plus ways to like compose your queries and like i didn't learn until just the other day that like you can literally pipe instead of using that ecto.query.from syntax you can actually like pipe into like ecto.where or query.where and query.limit and all that stuff it's like that's way easier to read than writing a from <laughs> it, statement it, 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 it is but i'm gonna put an asterisk there Half the time I'm writing those queries like that, I start with the macro approach. That's what that is, where you can pipe them in. Half the time I have to rewrite it in the other mm. in the other way because there's not everything is supported in the macro. But you always have to have that first argument that takes the the bindings, right? That's the first argument. And and the, but if you are are doing the bindings in a in a slightly different, maybe more dynamic way, the macro approach kind of kind of breaks down a little bit. That's my personal pattern now is to, I gave up on the macro approach a while ago. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even try it anymore, though I do prefer the way it, it reads. It's, it reads so much better. I just end up having to rewrite it. <laughs> like I was reading this thing that was like, you should always name your binding. And I was like, I don't think I ever even use bindings, period. <laughs> like, what is this? Like, why is he so determined that you should name your bindings? I don't even use binding. What's going on? There's so many things I don't understand about like, just like the the depth of ecto and like and when you want to compose these things together you may not know that you've already you know done the join so you have to ask and there's a functions like as name binding foo you know like and if it doesn't do the binding if it doesn't then uh, then you know use it right and apparently they're coming out with a guard it may be in the next release of elixir that's like has binding or something so you could like actually guard on your on your queries that you're composing it's like just blows my mind. I don't. I'm not even on that level. Uh, that'll be useful. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's the fun thing is is it's constantly changing. So writing anything is always it's a it's a snapshot in time, you know, and keeping it up to date is a, a challenge. But what's great about this book that you're working on is it covers a lot of that time that has already passed from the earlier books that a lot of us have already read, and. Things like persistent terms that aren't probably in some of those other books, those are getting revisited. And some of, you know, the, the newer additions to what's available in OTP and the Beam and what's available with dynamic supervisors and, and everything that has grown up since then. What's the roadmap look like? When are you expecting more final releases or, or how, what is that going to look like? That's kind of flexible at the moment. That's why the book uh, was released as beta. Because I'm also waiting for uh, Elixir 14 to come out with partition supervisors. So I definitely want to cover that. I feel like that would be a miss if I'm in the middle of writing a book with, with Hugo here. And there's a great Elixir feature that just got released and we we just don't include it. So we're waiting for Elixir 14 to come out and see see what's in there to make sure it's as up to date as possible. Some sidetracks here and there, with like especially with this uh, this PR to live book for, for visualizing supervision trees. 
so I'm kind of using this opportunity to take all the things that I'm learning from building a learning resource in Livebook, and and if there's something that could be PR'd back to to Livebook, I would I would love to do that. But I mean, I'm hoping you know in the next few months that all the content is done, and we're kind of in that iteration phase of you know fixing things that people are finding because inevitably there will be bugs in the code, and I've already gotten a couple of uh, messages. Hey, you know this this example code was. Uh, was incorrect. So I'm like, ooh, got to fix that in the next release. So if people were to buy the beta right now, I assume they continue to get the updates and everything as it comes out, right? Yeah, that is correct. And the idea is that if you're willing to support us, you know, early on, you get a good discount. I think it's like 35, 40% off if you buy it now, as opposed to when we're done with the book and, uh, you know, the, the price will change after that. So that's kind of the, the value proposition if you get the book now versus versus later. If people want to follow you online and see what you're doing or find your cache of GitHub projects that you've got, where should they go to do that? Twitter's usually a good place to, to follow me. I'll usually post uh, what I'm working on or some screenshots or videos or teasers. You, know, you can also follow me on GitHub. I usually keep most of my stuff uh, pi- uh, public that people can can view. Uh, I also have a blog, akutmos.com. There's a lot of good uh, good articles there and content. I'm usually akutmos everywhere on the internet. So really original. First letter of the first name and last name. That's great. Well, Alex, I really appreciate you taking the time to visit with us and just kind of talk through some of the things that you've been doing in the Elixir community. You've been a contributor here for a long time, like with Elixir tips and a lot of the stuff that you're actively involved with and doing as open source. So I, I really appreciate that. And uh, I'm really excited to see where your Elixir Patterns book ends up and all the stuff that you're able to cover. Oh, thank you guys. Thanks for having me on. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. Thank you.